All right, so last week we took a break from this sermon series because it was Resurrection Sunday, kind of a big deal. We want to make it a big deal. We always want to make that a big deal. But as we um, said even last week, that is what we preach here every Sunday, the resurrected Christ. We want to preach him, make much of him every single week. This week will be no different. Now this week is a continuation of, if you can remember far enough back, two weeks ago, uh, of the text that we are looking at in Ephesians chapter 2. This is simply Christ building his church, kind of part two. So last, or I'm going to say that a lot. Two weeks ago, we looked at the text, and Paul was simply reminding us that we, left to ourselves, are completely and utterly separated from Christ in our sinful nature. But God, being rich in his mercy, has brought us near. Now that is, brought us near to himself to God, but also to one another, that we can have peace because Christ is our peace between God and us, but also peace between man and man, or woman and woman, between people. H.B. Charles is a pastor in Florida. He's an author uh, as well. He's written many books. He puts it this way. He says, you cannot accept the reconciliation of man to God without also accepting the practical outpourings of reconciliation of man to man. Christ has made peace. We are one in Christ. So we have to accept both of those. And two weeks ago, this is what we discussed, how it doesn't matter what creed or color, it does not matter what demographic you fall into, it does not matter the category that the world would put you in, we are in the same category, one in Christ. We looked at how Christ was making a brand new man. Now, the best way I've heard this described, this is not a new version of a man. This is not a 2018 Ford Explorer. This is the Model T. This is never before been seen type of man. This is a new man, a brand new man, made solely and in Christ. So it is Christ that brings us peace based on that. This week, we will continue down that path as we look at the church, for what it means for us in the church, for what it means for us to be a part of a church. So we will attempt to answer the question, what is God really up to in the church? Sometimes we have that legitimate question because it doesn't look the way it's supposed to look or it doesn't feel the way we think it should feel. And yet I feel like this text speaks a little bit to facts don't care about your feelings. It is what is God doing in the church, not what do we want God to be doing in the church? That same pastor, H.B. Charles, which by the way, I looked up, tried to figure out what H.B. stood for. Fun fact, it stands for nothing. He, it's just, he's a named by initials. I thought that was really weird. Never heard of that before. Thought I'd throw it out there. Anyway, this guy who's named initials says that the first half of Ephesians 2 is how God makes Christians. The second half is how he makes the church. And I would agree with this assessment. And what it makes us realize is that the two go hand in hand. One automatically leads to the other. When God makes Christians, he makes a church. When people become Christians, they automatically become part of the church and a church. You see here, Paul is writing to a specific local church in a specific local place in a specific local context. So that means 
it is just automatically assumed that once people become Christians, they will join other Christians in the outpouring of God's work in their lives. You see, many of us have grown up in this church world. Many of us have grown up in church. So we have the Joe Dierte churched up definition of what is church. So if someone asks you, you say, well, it's not the building, it's the people. Or you say, church is the body of Christ. Or it's a place you gather to worship. All of these things are true. There is nothing wrong with saying them. I would even encourage you to continue to define church that way. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 says, now you are the body of Christ. Colossians 1.18, he, meaning Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. That is a perfectly defin good definition. These definitions are not wrong, but we also know that we don't always act like the body of Christ. We don't always act like we are supposed to. The word in Greek, ekklesia, means called out ones. We are to stand in the church. We are to stand out from culture, stand out from the world. We are to be distinct from the world and look altogether different. J.I. Packer, uh, in a video that we'll, we'll probably share this week for MC purposes, in a video entitled, What is the Church? Conveniently, it's, he says this, The church is the fellowship of all the Christians there are. It is the family of God. And God the Father wants us to treat our brothers and sisters as if they are brothers and sisters. Any person who thinks I can be a Christian on my own without the church is really perverse. You can't live the real Christian life except as a member of the family and as so a part of the church. Just as in a family... This means we do not come and go as we wish. We are not in the family one week and out of the family the next. We do not leave because we're having an emotional day or we're just unhappy that day or we've just having one of those days. This means also there are no lone Christians. I don't know if this was a huge problem for Paul or in that time, but it is a huge problem in 2018. Oh, I love Jesus, but I don't go to church. Or I love Jesus, but I can't stand church people. Or I love Jesus, but I don't like religion. And what Paul clearly tells us here, we will see this very clearly here. There is no such thing as a lone Christian. There is no such thing as a disconnected Christian. You cannot simply live the Christian life by yourself and it be the full Christian life that God is calling us to in Scripture. You see, this is why if you look through all of the Old Testament and all of the New Testament, but especially focus on the New Testament, there's no real Scripture I can point you to that urges you to join a church. Go be a part of the church at Ephesus. Go be a part of the church at Galatia. It was just assumed that you would be one if you became a Christian. And then Paul went into what that looks like inside the church. But it wasn't, hey, go join the church, new Christian. It was, hey, we know you're going to do that part. So now go be the church. Be a part of the church with others. It was just assumed that once someone came face to face with the real Jesus, that they would want to be around their brothers and sisters, that they would join up, they would plant the gospel, and that the gospel would spring forth what we call a local congregation or a church. See, we are to treat one another with love 
and charity. We are to love one another as Christ loved us. We are to serve one another. We are to bear one another's burdens. We are to carry out, carry out the one another's that are all over the New Testament. But we cannot do that if you're not in relationship with one another. It's physically impossible to do something for one another if there is no another. Okay? These are the things that we should do and only by God's grace will we do them. But we all know that none of us carry this out perfectly. None of us carry this out the way we should all the time. Church can be hard. Church can be messy. Church can be hurtful. Church can be painful. Church can be unpleasant. And it's because the church is full of imperfect people carrying out God's perfect plan imperfectly. And no, I am not going to say that again. So I hope you got it. Charles Spurgeon once said, it's a very famous quote of his, it says, You that are members of the church have not found it perfect, and I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I would have never joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. And this is the best part. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. This is where we must try to get, and hopefully today will help. We must realize that church, yes, it's imperfect. People are imperfect. People do things we don't like, but it is oh so dear and it is oh so worth it to be in this relationship, to be in the church, to be in the bride. See, Paul uses three simple yet very profound analogies here in this text at the end of Ephesians 2. It helps us to understand what he is saying we should be like even more. So the first one we see here in verse 19a, that we were strangers and aliens, and now we are fellow citizens. Paul uses the metaphor of a kingdom or a city or a country, somewhere you can live and be a citizen of. Once we come to believe in and trust in Jesus for our salvation, we become fellow citizens in his kingdom. It doesn't matter where we started. It doesn't matter where we're from. It doesn't matter any of those things. How rich, how poor, how smart, how not smart, how tall, how short, how big. Doesn't matter any of those things. We are all included based on the one single question on the entrance exam. Do you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? If you do, you are a fellow citizen. Now, what does that look like has many different questions and many different answers. But the simple question of getting into the kingdom and being a citizen is that one. You are saved by faith through grace. It's the only qualification needed. Paul uses this metaphor, though, in a time where where you were from was a really big deal. This is no accident that Paul is using this metaphor, this analogy. Think about it. What was his name before he was Paul? Saul of Tarsus. It's very important to know where he was from. Where's Jesus from? Jesus of Nazareth. It, it's very important to these people where they are from. Many people were identified that way. People ask me all the time, what was Jesus' last name? Uh, it's not Christ. Just let you know. Okay? It's a tip. Um, it's, I don't know. Because most of the time they didn't have quote-unquote last names. It was 
it was Jesus of Nazareth. There were other people named Jesus back then. They had to identify which one they were talking about. There were other people named Saul back then. They had to identify which one they were talking about. This is very important to these people. And Paul uses this analogy purposefully to get their attention and to say, your citizenship in this kingdom supersedes your citizenship of anywhere else you are from or anywhere else you will ever be from. See, I love America, and I really do. With all of its imperfections, I love being here. But as soon as my patriotism trumps my citizenship in the body of Christ, it's a sin and it's idolatry. I can't love America more than being a part of the kingdom of God. Paul is telling us here the same thing as Philippians 3.20 says. We are citizens of heaven, and from there we await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our love for city, we talk about it all the time here at Mission Church. We love Bowling Green. We want to see a revival happen in Bowling Green, and we would love God to use us as part of that. We just want to see it happen, though, because we love this city but if love for city, state, or country becomes greater than love for Christ, we have, we have crossed the line that we should not have crossed. It must pale in comparison to our love for Christ. Our new citizenship always and forever will trump our old citizenship. Paul goes on to say here that not only are we citizens, so we have the rights of citizens. We have all of those rights, but we, further than that, we are also now members of the household of God. That is s simply astounding to even read. That we are ushered in, not only, so, yeah, you get to live here. You get to be a citizen here. Cool. But he's sitting us around his table. He is giving us a bedroom. He is, he is saying, you live here now. See, family name was also important back then. And God is saying, you are now, you're not visiting my family. You are home. A lot of you went on trips this week. I'm sure they were awesome. Every trip I ever go on, well, usually is great. But it's awesome to come home. It is great to come home and just lay in my own bed. It's perfectly rutted out to where I've laid in it all this time. Like, it's just, it fits me. I'm there. Of course, my wife lays on my side of the bed all the time, and I'm like, why? Why? Because everything gets spilled on my side. The crumbs are on my side. Nora has her accidents on my side. I'm like, are you doing this on purpose? It never happens over there. But anyway, I love coming home. I love being in my bed. I love being in my space. Home is where the heart is. That's why that's a saying. Family name, though, was also important then. You can look all over Scripture, and it's Joshua, son of Nun. It's we are Abraham's family, right? The family was very important. The Jewish people had made a living saying, we're part of Abraham's family. That's why we're special. That's why we're important. That's why we're who we are. It wasn't because of who they were specifically. It's who they were just related to, basically. Family name was important. And Paul is saying to the Gentiles and the Jews alike, doesn't matter how someone started, upon placing their faith and trust in Jesus, they become co-heirs. They are equal. They are the same. They are family. Even Jesus, when his disciples came to him, teach us how to pray, what were the first words out of his mouth? What was the first word out of his mouth? Our. Our Father. Not my Father. He wasn't saying my Father and you guys are over here. It was our Father. We are together in this. Our Father. He is including us in His family. 
Now, some of you may know this more than others, but I have some crazy, is the word, in-laws? I don't don't know. My wife's over there shaking her head, I am assuming. I'm not going to look right now. But you... You many times see them act their craziest, though, and say the craziest things at family functions. It's when they're all together. It's like the crazy is contagious, and it just rubs off. I don't know. But I do know one reason why. It's because they can let their guard down. They can be themselves. They're amongst family. They're not out in public. They're not at the mall where everybody can see them acting silly. They're with family. They are together. But this is a perfect illustration of how the church should function. Not crazy, but just ourselves. Authentic. Be ourselves. We should be our authentic selves, for better or for worse. Mission Church wants you to just be you. We want you to come in and say, man, I'm not okay today. You don't have to wear a mask here. You don't have to fake it till you make it here. This is where you get to struggle. You are allowed to struggle because you have people to struggle with you. You are allowed to say, man, I'm just having one of those days. What can, we, what can we do? How can you help me? How can you walk with me? You can say you've offended me and talk it out with grace and mercy with one another instead of having to break relationships. I mean, think about it. Why do people say the things to family they would never say to other people? They would never be that rude to most people. Most people have a filter, but with family, for some reason, the filter's just gone, and they say whatever, and it's because they know family's not going anywhere. They're going to continue to be family. This is not a license to be rude or a jerk in church, okay? So that's not what I'm saying. But it is a license to admit when things are hard or when someone has upset you or when you disagree with someone because family acts like family, Nothing is more awkward than when someone brings boyfriend or girlfriend who's never been there to the family function and they start acting like family and they start cracking jokes on the family member that everybody else is cracking jokes on and then it's like the record stops. It's like, what did you just say? How dare you talk about that? But you just said, it doesn't matter. That's my mom. I can talk about her that way. That's my sister. I can talk about her that way. Now, this is not to say we shouldn't welcome people into the church. We absolutely should. Guests are welcome here. We want them to be welcome here. But I am not going to talk to a guest the same way I've talked to Adam York, who I've known for almost two decades now. There are just things we're going to say to each other, and we know how to take them, that that guest might not. I'm not going to tell a guest first time walking in the door my deepest, darkest secrets that some of you in this room know that you better keep. Okay? I'm not going to talk to them that way. I don't need, speaking of Adam York, I don't need those stories being told either. But the goal is for those people to come in, we welcome them, and eventually they also become family, and then they also share in the family acting like family. This is why commitment to the body is so important. This is why formally saying, I'm a part of this family, I'm a part of this church, is so crucial. This is why Mission Church makes a really big deal about membership. We do not let you come in and say, I want to be a member. Sign on the dotted line. You're a member. Here you go. Why, though? Because we want to be authentic. We want you to be authentic. We want us to be authentic. And that is when you are signing on for, we know that you know, and you know that we know that that's what we've signed up for, that family is going to act like family because you have signed up for it. 
for better or for worse. We are equal opportunity around here. You sign on that line, you're getting made fun of the next week for something, okay? I don't know. Sometimes it's even before you sign because we are so equal opportunity. It's our love language around here, so just deal with it, okay? But we act like family because we know you are now family. You have said, I am part of this, and I will remain part of this so we can be authentic, we can be ourselves. This gives us permission to do so. Lastly, Paul uses an analogy that honestly is used, I don't know if it's used more times necessarily than any other analogy in Scripture, but it's definitely used, I don't know, more in the whole scheme of Scripture because you can see this from Genesis all the way to Revelation in one form or another. Paul says that we are growing into a holy temple. We are being built together into a dwelling place for God. The temple in the Old Testament was not just some insignificant building that just happened to be pretty or happened to be bigger than all of the other ones. No, it was literally where God lived. It was where his presence dwelt. It was where he was. Hence, not everybody could just stroll up in there and do whatever they wanted to do. His presence was there. But we see this same premise in Eden where God walked with his people, with Adam and Eve. He walked with them in the cool of the day. We see this in the tabernacle that was set up and tore down. Reminds me of something around here, right? That's what we're doing. We're just inviting God in every Saturday when we set up and tear down. But the tabernacle was set up and torn down every time they moved. Why? So God would have a place to place his presence to be. Again, not everybody could just roll up in the tabernacle and do whatever they wanted. It was God's presence so he could be there as they moved from place to place. We see the temple then in Jerusalem. And then in Revelation, we see the new Jerusalem where God is going to be with all of his people for all time. All of these are ways in which God made for himself to be with his people. See, this image is not a new one here for Paul. He is reminding the people that now that we are a people for God's own possession, he takes up residence in us as a people. We are being built together with all of our imperfections and all of our rough edges and our sharp edges and our little quirks and peccadillos and the things that we don't even want people to know about, like only our wives and husbands know about, all of that's being brought into this soup we call church, being mixed together. All of our flaws and our brokenness, our pasts, our past hurts, our future hurts, all of that is coming to the table. And again, for context, this was not just some arbitrary analogy that Paul wanted us to see, or Paul wanted his readers to see. I have a picture, I believe, of a dwelling place from around that time. There is argument as to whether this is actually Jesus' home. Don't know. Don't particularly care. But look at the rocks. Are any of those things the same size or shape? They're all different. They're all placed differently. None of them are perfectly placed or grouped together. The big ones are over here and the small ones are over here and the rough ones are over here and the square ones are over here and the circle ones are over here. No, they were just placed to accomplish the greater purpose. The structure was made with rocks of all shapes, all sizes, rough edges, sharp edges. They were brought together, not because they were the same, but because they could be brought together for a common cause that would serve a better cause than they could alone. Notice all the rocks. I know there's not a picture. Just imagine the yard. All the rocks left out in the yard are not claiming to be part of the house. They're not saying, yeah, I'm part of that house. Just sitting in the yard over here by myself. The bricks and the rocks that are 
attached to the house, that are in the house, that are on the house. You don't drive past a pile of bricks and go, there's my home. That's where I live, in the pile of bricks. No, it is the bricks that have been placed together to accomplish a greater purpose. See, most of the rocks in that picture, left by themselves, would have served little to no purpose. If you just take one of those rocks and chuck it out in the yard, it, it basically serves no purpose by itself. But organized and shaped together, it benefits the whole. Now if you take one out, the structure is not as secure. Now if you take one out, it's not the same residence. It's not the same dwelling place. This is the way the church should look. This is the way the church should be. If you look around in this room, many rocks, many different stories. Right here, even in this place. But if you take one out, something's missing. The whole house may not fall down if you take one out, but something is still missing. There's something that has to be either compensated for by someone else, or it just always goes missing because it is not there. It is what we read in 1 Corinthians earlier. The eye cannot just say, well, I wanted to be a hand. I'm out of here. You can't just do that. It, they work together to accomplish a greater purpose. How does Paul state that this dwelling place is built, though? And this is very important. Verses 20 and 21. It's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. First, Paul specifically says here that we are being built on a foundation. And that foundation is the apostles and the prophets. What exactly does he mean? There is a little bit of debate here. Some people think it's kind of like we're being built on the shoulders of the apostles and prophets. What they accomplished, we are just being built up. Kind of like America and the forefathers. We are being built on the foundation they laid. But most, myself included, believe it to mean the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. That's the foundation that they laid. In other words, we are being built on the things that they said and they taught. And what did those two groups of people always say and always teach if they were good apostles and prophets? God's words. That's it. That's all they really wanted to speak. The prophet, even when it was an unpopular message, had to go into a place and say, hey, this is what God told me to say. I am preaching to you God's words. The apostles, they knew Jesus first and foremost, firsthand. They are teaching God's words, Jesus' words firsthand. This is the very foundation that we are built on here at Mission Church. We want everything we do to be built on the Word of God. We want to be biblically based, Bible teaching, Bible believing. If there is a dispute or a disagreement amongst any of us from Pastor Eric on down to the first time person here, if there is a disagreement or a dispute, we don't want to settle it by arguing or debating. We want God's Word to settle that. And that is who decides who is right and who is wrong. We want to be biblically informed. This is why we preach each and every Sunday from a very specific text. We don't skip around. We don't skip over. There's plenty of times I can think of specifically that I was like, oh, really? Thanks for giving me that one. Can we just skip that and go on to the next section of Scripture? Because I don't really want to say the things that that's going to cause me to say. But we do it. Because this is God's word. This is the foundation. This is why we don't let culture or the news determine what we're going to talk about on Sundays. This is why we're not talking about gun control and abortion rights every week. This is why we're not talking about... I'm not saying we shouldn't ever talk about those things in certain settings. 
It's God's word. We've got to be built on this foundation. We believe the Bible to be true, without contradiction, infallible and inerrant. We believe that its words hold the meaning and the way to eternal life. We believe the gospel message is what has the power of God to save. We believe that the church, built on any other foundation, is faulty and shaky at best, and it is bound to fall. And we make zero, not even the hint of an apology for that. If you find yourself in a church ever in the rest of your life that will not affirm that, that they are built on the foundation of God's word, I will tell you now, I don't even know what church you're talking about, leave. Go to a different church. Now that, notice I didn't say musical style or the preaching style or the people there. But if they won't affirm that they are built on the foundation of God's word, bounce. Go somewhere else. Find a church that will affirm that. But even beyond that, even beyond being built on the foundation of and the truth found in God's word, we are built on something even more sure, something even more steady, even more unshakable. Jesus is the cornerstone. The cornerstone was set before the foundation was set. In any house you build, even to this day, you got to get the corner right and then you can proceed. If you don't, everything is off. And this is why even though we preach a specific text, no matter where we're at in Scripture, it comes right back to Jesus. We always preach Jesus. We are always going to come back to the gospel. This is why even before we make disciples here, our vision statement is what? Worship Jesus first. Because we've got to know what we're making disciples of. We can make disciples of all kinds of stuff. The culture's doing a really good job of it, probably better than the church is. So we can make disciples of anything, but if we're worshiping Jesus first, we're not going to go off track very far. We are always going to come back to Jesus. He is the whole reason why we are making disciples. He's the reason. He's the sender. He's the chief end of man. He is the Lord. He is the Savior. He is the cornerstone. See, Jesus, just as the foundation must always be the Word of God, the foundation of the foundation must always be Jesus. Again, you find yourself in a church one day that won't affirm that, I wouldn't stay there. Or I would at least try to get them to affirm that, at the very least. But here's the catch. It must be this Jesus. Not some concocted Jesus that we've come up with. Not some half-hearted Jesus. The Jesus of the Bible. I had a great discussion this week with the program Living Guys. I was teaching through uh, the end of John where doubting Thomas. I hate calling him that because that's how I would have been. So I'm doubting Justin, I guess, because I would have been like, nah, bro, you're going to have to let me see something first. I'm, but anyway, doubting Thomas. So I had them. I said, write down any doubts you've got about Christianity, about this faith, about Jesus, about the Bible. Just write them down. I'll be back in 10 minutes, and we'll talk about whatever you want to talk about. I'm going to let you guys decide. Some of them were quirky and weird. Some of them were better thought out. But one guy, pretty much, once this was stated, took up the rest of our time. One guy stated that he thinks that it might, he was like, man, I believe in Jesus. I believe, I believe all that. But, but, what if all religions, if someone really believes it and really follows it, like really leads to the same God and the same heaven? So I drew the 
quintessential drawing on the board of a mountain with many paths up to the top. Because he was like, I believe there's one God and one heaven. But maybe all these religions get you to that one God and one heaven. So I said, okay. Through, I'm not going to go through the whole thing. If you want to hear the story, fine, come talk to me. But through a long series of questions, we were able to establish a baseline. And I said, why would you not, if I really believed I could fly, would you let me jump off of a tall building? He said, of course not. I said, but what if I, I just really, ugh, I really believed it though. And he was like, yeah, but the truth is that you can't. I said, there's a key word, truth. Truth matters. Truth matters. And this is why we must be worshiping the Jesus of this scripture, because this is the true Jesus. Truth is important. This is why it must be this Jesus and this cornerstone, or the foundation is built on something that is not going to stand the test of time. He is what holds it all together. It's what holds us all together. I'm not here because we all like the same sports team. I'm not here because we're all educated the same. I'm not here because we have common interests or common hobbies. Some of you I do, and some of you I don't. Some of you talk about stuff all the time, and you may not know it, but I have no idea what you're talking about. I just nod along and smile a lot because I don't know, but I, I want you to talk to me about it because we're in this together. Christ unites us. Christ holds us together. It is Jesus that must be the cornerstone or it's not going to last because our interests change. Our hobbies change. Our likes and dislikes change. All of that changes. And if that's what's holding us together and it changes, then nothing's holding us together. It must be something that does not change. The church is built on one single commonality, the love for and worship of Jesus. That is enough to unite us. That is enough to hold us together, even if we don't have any other common interests whatsoever. We are built together in a living structure for God's presence to be made manifest in the world for the world to see that God is who reconciles those that the world would separate. We're not even that diverse in this room, and the world would separate us into all kinds of different categories. You're over here, you're over here, you're too old, you're too young, you're too this, you're too that. And again, this is not even a super diverse church. Imagine if, if you go somewhere that's just all over the map of every demographic you can think of. The world would separate them, and everybody would just be in their own group. Christ unites us into one entity, into one being, into one dwelling place. Here and in 1 Peter chapter 2, it says that we are being built. This means the building never stops being built. This means it is constantly under construction. It is constantly being added to. Anybody ever gone into a store that's being remodeled, but they're staying open during the remodel, right? They've got a sign on the door that says, excuse our mess, we're getting better, or excuse our mess, we're remodeling or whatever, we should hang one of those on every church door that's following the Bible. Pardon our mess, we're under construction. And never take it down because we are always under construction. Not because of the physical mess, not because of the dirt, but we are always forever changing, hopefully adding new people in, young Christians who don't know how to walk the walk yet, but they really want to. And we are here to walk with them. 
people that go through something that just kind of derails them for a little bit. We want to walk with them, but we are constantly under construction, and we want to invite people into our happy little mess because we know that it's an ever-changing, never-finished dwelling place for God. But think about it. That's exactly why church can be so messy. All of those things we talked about, painful, unpleasant, messy, it's because we're bringing all those types of people in that we just talked about. People that are young in the faith. People that aren't even in the faith yet, but God is drawing them. So they have to come and they have to take baby steps. But we, we don't want the mess. We want everybody to cookie cutter. Because it hurts. Because it bothers us. Because it makes us think we, we know the hurtful, painful, unpleasant, messy definition. And this is why many people end up leaving a particular church to go to a new one. And let's face it, we can all be honest here. Many people in this room and many people that are usually in this room, that's how they got here. And we celebrate that. We love having each and every person in this room. This is not a go back to where you came from statement. We love having you here. But here's the thing that we won't celebrate. If you came here expecting us to be perfect, or if you came here expecting the pastors never to say something that you don't like, disagree with, or that hurts you, or that we regret saying, we're not always right. If you came here expecting no one to ever let you down or stab you in the back or say something mean behind your back that they shouldn't, or say something to your face that they shouldn't. You're just going to end up leaving here too. Because all of those things are going to happen. Those are unrealistic expectations of any church. And no church is strong enough to hold the weight of those expectations. None of them. On earth. But Jesus is. Jesus is strong enough to hold the weight of the expectations. He'll never disappoint you. He'll never stab you in the back. He'll never say something and then immediately try to reach out and grab the words. He'll never do any of those things. Now, he may tell you stuff you don't like. That, that, that part actually is true of Jesus. But it's always because it's true and you need to hear it. And here's the thing that's even better than that. He's also the reason when those things happen person to person that we forgive others when they do. He's the reason we can disagree with other brothers and sisters and not have to break relationship over it. Because that's what the world does. Oh, you think that? I'm out. Never talking to you again. Instead of having a discussion about it, let's find the common ground. Let's find where we can still be friends here. This is why even when it hurts, even though it hurts, because the same things that happen outside of the church happen inside of the church, that it doesn't kill us that we can make it through, that we can, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do what Paul is saying here. We are being built into the dwelling place for God. Mistakes happen on every construction site. But it doesn't tear the whole house down, hopefully. Because the power of the Holy Spirit allows us to work together and join together and be together and be a family. I don't... <laughs> I don't have to go back to the in-law statement. Our family gatherings are not always peaceful and fun. But we're still family. And we still love each other. And we're going to go to the next one. 
and they're going to come to the next one. So in conclusion then, how do we respond to this text? What is our response as the church, as mission church? We ask first, what is God calling us to and why? God is calling us as the church, as his body, to move about in the world in a much different way than the culture. We are called to look different so that people will see Jesus as the ultimate reason why people so different can come together and be different together. 1 Peter 2 9 says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We're not just hanging out in this mess to hang out in it. It is for a specific purpose and is to point people to Jesus, the one who brought us all together. We are to be and interact differently because what Christ has done in us individually and corporately so that we can then proclaim his greatness to others who will then hopefully come to this group, be a part of the family, and be added to the dwelling place of God. That way all three of these analogies then apply to them. And in my opinion, and this is not thus, thus saith the Lord, this is, this is just me, but especially in today's disjointed culture where everything is divided and we can't agree on, is it cloudy today or not? Well, I mean, it's, it's kind of cloudy, but I, I wouldn't call it cloudy, right? And then you can cause a whole debate on that, and then you're not friends anymore because it was a cumulus or a whatever the other ones are called, okay? It's especially in today's culture where everybody's angry and offended about everything, it is true and lasting unity in Christ that will set us apart. We have established that our ultimate unity comes in and through the work of Jesus on the cross, taking root in our lives and that being the glue that bind us, binds us. Jesus remains and always will remain the cornerstone. You see, unity is not sameness. We don't have to come here and be all the same. I, don't, I wouldn't even want to be here if we were all the same. It would be much less boring, I can assure you of that. But our unity built around Jesus will look different to the world. When we can gather together with people we have nothing in common with. Black folk, white folk, any other color folk, far left, far right, rich, poor, pro-guns, anti-guns, smart, stupid, old, young, male, female, goody two-shoes, ex-criminal, sober as a judge, struggles with addiction. You name the category. You can come up with hundreds more right now off the top of your head that the world would say, nah, Democrat, Republican, Warren County schools, Bowling Green schools, like, it doesn't matter, okay? Divisions are everywhere, and the world is going to tell you, just go hang out with the other of that, whatever that is. Don't, it's mess, this is messy. We don't want this. The world is going to tell us, you can't unify. You can't be united. You're too different. But over and over again in Scripture, over and over again in Scripture. I think I have these on the screen. I'm going to fly through them so you don't have to try to turn to them. Over and over again, though, we are called to unity, unity, unity. 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Ephesians 4, 12 and 13. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. 
Colossians 4, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, oh no, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. 1 Peter 3, 8, finally, all of you having unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Romans 12, 16, live in harmony with one another. Philippians 2, 1 and 2, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Other than unity, what is the, the commonality between all these texts? They're written to churches, every one of them. Every one of those texts that we just read was written to people that should have already been doing this. Because unity is really, really difficult. Because we want to focus on the little things that divide us instead of the major big thing that unites us. I love Jesus, therefore I can look past these. That's how it should work. Not, well, I love Jesus, but I can't get past this. You voted for who? Oh, I'm out. And I, I don't even care to know what everybody in here voted. But I know the world will tell you that it matters. Or you think that? Well, I mean, I guess you love Jesus. We think everything is a close-handed issue in today's culture, that we should fight over it. You can't be united over that. Even in church, this is difficult. That is why it is continually written to churches to remind them it's a constant barrage of reminders. Be, be united. Be united. We are all sinners trying to follow the sinless one. And we're going to mess that up time and time again. We have to constantly remind ourselves that we are called to unity in Christ. That's why we preach the gospel every week here. That's why we talk about the cross every week here. Because that is what unites us. That is one thing we should know that we all agree upon. Now, I know your question is probably, well, practically speaking then, how do I handle this situation? Well, what about this? When this person says this, what do I do? And I, I, I don't have the time or the inclination to go through each and every one, but the answer is you be like Christ. You be like Jesus because it's all about Jesus. This is why we show much grace, because we've been shown much grace through Christ. This is why we forgive, because we've been forgiven in Christ. This is why we are humble, because Christ was humble. We're compassionate. Christ was compassionate. We love one another, because Christ loved the unlovable. This is why we empty ourselves for others, because Christ emptied himself for us. This is why we do not gossip. We do not grumble. We do not complain. We do not backstab. We do not do all of these things behind the scenes, because even though he was innocent, no deceit was found in his mouth. We are all pointing to Jesus in every action that we take because we are unified around the gospel of Jesus. We know that we have been saved when we did not deserve to be saved. We know we have been loved when we did not deserve to be loved. So stop making people earn it from you. You love them when they don't deserve it. You forgive them when they don't even say sorry because it's all about Jesus. Not about you and it's not about me. Because we can be united through that. There is no denying that life in the bride of Christ is messy. But this, again, is why membership is so important. Because then we know who has covenanted to be with us even through the mess. Because if you're not a member, 
we don't know if you're coming next week or not. When, some, when we say something, I may have said something today that I don't even realize that made you mad. And you may not come back next week. But if you're a member, we can pretty much assume you'll be back or that you'll come talk to us about it or you'll email or text or call or whatever. And that's what family does. You see, no matter what my wife and I are going through, ups, downs, every marriage has them, I know I'm not going anywhere, and she knows she's not going anywhere, and she knows that I'm not going anywhere, and I know that she's not going anywhere. Lots of times, that's how we kill an argument. Like, hey, you're not going anywhere, right? Then what are we doing? Let's just go. Okay? Why, though? Because we have covenanted to be with one another. We have told each other, I'm not going anywhere. It doesn't matter how bad this gets. And the very same should be true in the church. We should be there for the ups, the downs, the trials, the disappointments, and the rejoicings and the celebrations. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. That was also written to a church. We should be good at that. The church is an imperfect place full of imperfect people. And that is why it points to Jesus. Ephesians 5, which we'll get there months from now, years maybe. But Ephesians 5 says this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Not touching that part yet. That he might sanctify her. This is talking about Christ doing this for the church, his bride. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is what God is up to in the church. That's the answer to this question. Just read that scripture. He is perfecting her. He is to present her holy and without blemish. And he's doing so by bringing a group of people together that got all kinds of spots, wrinkles, and blemishes. And that's how he's perfecting the church, by bringing those people together and showing the world that he is the greater source of perfection, that he is the greater source of joy and satisfaction, that even when you're unhappy with your family, you are still family. Mission Church, may we aspire to this together as we wait for its consummation. May we forever be under construction by adding new people, by adding new problems. May we always be inviting people into this mess, but may we be able to truly, truly, truly say with Mr. Spurgeon, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth. And may we be only be able to say that because Jesus is our cornerstone. Pray with me.